Hometown Ghost Stories contains serious and often distressing events and is not intended for all audiences. Listener discretion is advised. This week on Hometown Ghost Stories, in 1928, a murder in York County, Pennsylvania would shock the nation. It had been over 200 years since the Salem Witch Trials, but now, dark magic was back in the spotlight. Join us as we cover the gruesome true story of the Hex Hollow murder and the hauntings that followed. This is episode number 26 of Hometown Ghost Stories. November 30th, 1928. Oscar Gladfelter woke up early. Today was the day. He climbed out of bed, careful not to wake his wife. She didn't believe in powwow healing, but he was out of options. They had little money and couldn't afford to call a doctor, but he couldn't stand to see his daughter suffer any longer. Oscar had heard about Nelson Raymire's healing powers and figured he'd give it a shot. He didn't have much to offer, but he knew Raymire wouldn't charge for his services. Still, he deserved something. Oscar grabbed a bottle of whiskey. Hope he likes bourbon, he whispered, and set off for Raymire's home. As he traveled down the heavily wooded area and turned off of Raymire's hollow road, he spotted the house. Chills went down his spine, and he couldn't help but notice the unsettling feeling as he approached the front door. Oddly enough, nobody was moving around the farm. Nelson should be out tending to his crops at this time of day, but not on this morning. He knocked at the door. No answer. He walked around the porch trying to get a glimpse inside the windows, but the curtains were drawn. He must not be home, Oscar thought to himself, as he set down the bottle of bourbon. Then he noticed the sound of a mule braying. Then as if his presence was sensed by the other farm animals, they all started making noise. Something was off. None of these animals had been fed or tended to in days. Oscar ran back to the front door and kicked it open. Nelson Raymire's mutilated body was face down in a burnt-out hole in the center of the floor. The Good Witch had been murdered. I'm Jesse Wilkins, and this is Hometown Ghost Stories, York, Pennsylvania. In the early 1900s, German settlers arrived in York County looking to live the American dream. One of these families was the Blymare family. The Blymares were in the business of magic. Roughly half of York County at the time believed in witchcraft, and many would come to the Blymares, in particular, Emmanuel, to perform rituals that they believed would help with healing and good fortune. When done correctly, they found that powwow magic was just as effective as medical treatment. In 1900, Emmanuel's son, John, came down with an illness. He tried several spells and attempts to heal John, but his condition worsened, and he was wasting away. Emmanuel was convinced that this had to be a hex. They eventually reached out to another local healer, Nelson Raymire, whose spells seemed to work. John was cured of his mysterious illness. John Blymere, who was only five years old at the time, became obsessed with powwow magic, believing that it had saved his life. At age seven, he'd be sent back to Raymire's Hollow, not for magic, but to work. Blymere would help pick potatoes for 25 cents a day. 
He would study the arts and become a healer himself over the years. At 13, he started working at a cigar factory in York. One of his co-workers, Albert Wagner, complained that he had something wrong with his eye and came to John for powwow healing. John agreed to help the man and instructed him to bring a dirty dinner plate with him the next day. The following morning, John pressed the dirty plate against Wagner's inflamed eye, whispered a spell, and then smashed the plate on the ground, stomping it to pieces. John did the sign of the cross three times over Albert's eye and informed him that it would be healed in the morning. To Wagner's surprise, it worked. Years later, John was praised by his friends for his extraordinary powers after coming face to face with a rabid dog, foaming at the mouth. He would cure the dog by putting his hand over its head and casting an incantation, calming the animal instantly. At age 17, he would fall ill again, losing weight and becoming paranoid. He believed that his powers had faded, and he must be cursed once again. He would briefly be institutionalized in an insane asylum, but he'd escape simply by walking out the front door and walking 25 miles home. He quit his job at the cigar factory to focus on breaking the hex that had been put on him. In 1917, he'd get married to a woman named Lily, and his life became more stable, holding down a new job and seemingly recovering from his illness. He felt as though his powers were being restored and started taking on clients as a powwow healer. However, his good fortune would not last. Five weeks after the birth of his first son, the baby would die from an unknown illness. Their second child would also die after a premature birth. Now 33 years old, John's life began to fall apart again, and he was convinced that he was once again suffering from a curse. The question was, which of these local witches had targeted him? His family had been trying for years to figure out who was responsible for this 20-year hex. After consulting with over 20 different witches over the years, John found himself at the doorstep of Nellie Knoll, also known as the Marietta River Witch. After several expensive sessions, the Marietta River Witch eventually informed Blymere that the one who had placed this hex on him was an older man who had cursed John of an illness during his childhood. It had to be Nelson Raymire, the healer who had saved John's life at the age of five using his powwow magic. John was a bit taken back from this news. Nelson was known for only using his magic for good, and he had known the family for decades. Taking note of John's disbelief at the accusations, the Mariotta witch offered to provide proof that Raymire was the culprit. The witch took a dollar bill and placed it in his palm. She told him that when he removed the bill from his hand, the face of the man responsible for the curse would appear on his palm. She whispered a spell under her breath and took the dollar bill away. John slowly looked down at his hand, and he was staring into the face of Nelson Raymire. John was convinced that Nelson was not only responsible for his own misfortune, but was a threat to the entire Hex Hollow community. He believed that Nelson was placing curses on other farmers in the area, which was why his crops thrived while others failed. He must have been putting on a front, duping the locals into thinking that he was healing them, when in reality, he must have been practicing the dark arts, causing their farms to fail, spreading disease and misfortune for his own benefit. The Mariotta River Witch informed Blymere that in order to break the curse, he would need to do two things. Get a lock of Nelson's hair to bury it six feet underground, and he would also need to burn Raymire's copy of The Long Lost Friend, a spell book written by John Homan in 1820. The book was used by local powwow practitioners and was believed to protect its owner against their enemies. Nelson Raymire was 60 years old at the time. He was not a healer by trade, but he did practice powwow magic as a hobby, helping people daily. He was a potato farmer who kept himself mostly, providing for his wife and two daughters. But over the years, he had earned the reputation as one of the best powwow healers in York County. His healing powers were so well known that his wife got tired of so many strangers coming by the house at all hours of the day and night. She decided it would be better to move into her family's house over the hill, which she had inherited. 
Nelson would be free to do all his powwow healing and farming on his own, while not being too far from his family. Meanwhile, John Blymere was trying to figure out how he was going to convince Raymire to give him the items he needed to break the curse. If Nelson really was a bad witch, placing hexes on the good people of the community, he wouldn't just admit to his wrongdoings and offer up a lock of his hair and his spellbook. Blymere needed a plan. John Curry was 14 years old at the time. He knew Blymere from the Scar Factory and looked up to him almost as a father figure. Blymere met with Curry and convinced him that Raymire had placed a hex on him as well, which is why he suffered abuse at home from his stepfather. Curry was young and easily influenced, so he agreed to help Blymere break the curse. Their first stop was to Nelson's wife's house, about a mile down the road from Raymire's Hollow. She informed Curry and Blymere that John was still living at their old house, and they went on their way. Raymire welcomed the two young men and invited them in for a drink. They were quickly reminded of what a massive man Nelson Raymire was, and they feared that they wouldn't be able to hold him down if things went south. They realized they were going to need more manpower. They spent a rather pleasant night with Nelson, chatting, drinking, talking about powwow magic and healing, different spells, and they were even offered a spare bed to spend the night. The next morning, Nelson fed them breakfast, and the two took off. He bid them farewell, but little did he know they would be back, and their next visit would not be as pleasant. The two Johns then visited a nearby farm owned by the Hess family. This was not a random visit. P.D. Hess was a client of John Blymere, who had hired the powwow practitioner to help him find out who had placed a hex on his farm. Blymere knew the Hess farm was failing. He also knew that Nelson's successful farm was their competition. The Hess animals were sick and their crops were rotting. So when John showed up at their doorstep with information that they were under a hex by Raymire, P.D. Hess was more than ready to help out in any way. The Hess family would agree to send their 18-year-old son, Wilbert, to assist the pair. That evening, Blymere, Curry, and Hess set off to Raymire's Hollow to settle things once and for all. They knocked on Nelson's door, who opened it, surprised to see Curry and Blymere back so soon. John explained that he had left something behind from the previous night and needed to grab it. Reluctant, Nelson explained that he hadn't seen anything, but he agreed to let the men inside anyways. This would be a fatal mistake. Blymere didn't hesitate this time. He immediately demanded the book. Raymire was taken back and acted like he didn't know what he was talking about. Nelson even denied owning the book, which set Blymere into a rage. John shrieked and lunged at Raymire. Curry and Hess sprang into action. The three men would attempt to hold down the giant witch, but he'd fight back. Eventually, the trio was able to subdue him and tie him up. Blymere was choking him while Hess kicked him over and over. Curry panicked and struck him in the head with a piece of wood. Raymire went unconscious, bleeding from the ears and they continued to kick and beat him over the head until his face was beyond recognition. The three men stood over his body looking down at him. Initially, they thought he was dead, but shortly after, they noticed he was still breathing. They wrapped the rope around his neck and strangled Raymire until he died just after midnight. John Blymere cried out, Thank God, the witch is dead. They attempted to cut a lock of hair from Nelson's lifeless body, but his head was a bloody mess and he quickly abandoned the plan. The three ransacked the house in search of the book, ready to rid themselves of this curse. They searched the first and second floor, but were too scared to check the basement. Instead, they decided to burn the witch's body, and subsequently set fire to the house, which would not only destroy the evidence, but if the book was in the residence, it would burn along with his body. Blymer felt that with Raymire dead and the house burned down, the hex would die along with him. They poured kerosene on Nelson's body, lit it on fire, and fled, expecting to see the house go up in flames. As they looked back into the fire, they claimed to see the witch moving around inside, 
before the fire mysteriously extinguished itself. The house did not burn down, but inside, the lifeless body of Nelson Raymire lay hunched over a beam on the floor in the middle of a hole burnt away from the flames. Nelson's body was discovered on November 30th. It didn't take long for authorities to catch up with the three responsible for the murder. Raymire's wife quickly made the connection to the individuals who had shown up on her doorstep looking for her husband. Police questioned Blymer, who proudly confessed to the crime as if he was acting in self-defense because of the curse. He fully believed that the killing of the witch was not only necessary, but it was justified, and he would be exonerated for his actions, even praised by the community for freeing them from his dark spells. The trial would turn into a media frenzy as soon as witchcraft was mentioned. The press dubbed the case voodoo murder, exposing the strange private lives of the local Pennsylvania Dutch people. Judge Ray P. Sherwood tried to avoid bringing up witchcraft in the courtroom because he knew what a circus the trial would turn into. He instructed the attorneys to avoid the topic of witchcraft and let them know that he would not entertain any evidence about hexes or spells and to focus solely on the notion that the motive for the murder was robbery, even though the total amount stolen from Raymire's house on the night of his murder was less than $3. Curry and Blymere used public defenders while the Hess family hired their own lawyers. The trial began on January 9th, 1929, and any mention of witchcraft was left out of the confessions. The judge feared that the jury would be sympathetic to Blymere's claims of a hex, since many in the community believed in witchcraft as well. After less than one hour of deliberation, the jury found Blymere guilty of murder in the first degree. They also found Curry guilty of first-degree murder, while Hess was found guilty of second-degree murder. The three were sentenced on January 14th, Blymer and Curry were sentenced to life in prison, while Hess was sentenced to 10 years for his involvement. Curry and Hess were paroled in 1934, and Blymer was paroled in 1953, after serving 23 years in prison. Many, including Judge Sherman, wondered if Raymeyer was Blymer's only victim. The body of 16-year-old Gertrude Rudy was found in 1927, with half of her head blown away from a point-blank range shotgun shot. Her body was placed on the railroad tracks. She had been seen with Blymer in the days leading up to her death, John Blymere's uncle happened to notice that his shotgun had gone missing around the same time. He never got it back. Blymere was the prime suspect in the case, but due to a lack of evidence, her murder was never solved. Sherman asked Blymere during his trial if Gertrude Rudy had begged for her life, causing Blymere to break down in tears, denying that he had anything to do with her death. The Hex Hollow murder house still stands today. Locals claim that the abandoned property is haunted, along with the surrounding woods. Chilling EVPs have been captured outside the house, and a black dog with glowing red eyes is said to roam the forest. People who have thrown rocks at the property have had them hurled back at them by unseen forces, and some claim to see the charred remains of Nelson Raymire moving around the first floor through the windows, as if he's still trying to extinguish the flames to save his house. Nellie Knoll, the Marietta River witch, was never charged for being an accomplice to the crime. But you have to wonder... What did Nelson Raymire do to be targeted by the River Witch? Had she never pointed Blymere in his direction, would the farmer have lived out his days peacefully? Or would she have found another cursed soul to take out her competition for her? I'm Jesse Wilkins, and this is Hometown Ghost Stories. Ghost stories. I'm Jesse Wilkins. I'm joined by Rob Rob Copley. What's up, Rob? Um, just hanging out. Was very excited to do a witchcraft story. That was fun. It was different. I'm also joined by Dave Wilkins. What's going on, Dave? What's going on? You said you couldn't make the uh, the filming of 
such a such a special episode for us. But you know, I know I would have loved to have been a part of it, but uh, I was uh, unwell that night. For those who uh, missed the video portion of that, I may or may not have been John Blymeyer in my own video. And Rob oh, is a fourteen-year-old. Wow. Yeah, I look it right. Yeah, I, uh, I want to. Sh- I want to give a uh, huge, huge <laughs> shout out to Captain McSlugs for being uh, Nelson Raymire and um, allowing us to beat him to death. And then um, the Marietta River, which was uh, was my extremely, you know, what's crazy is in the story she's like a ninety year old or seventy year old, like old disgusting woman. But instead, it's my eighteen year old wife. <laughs> she's beautiful, yep. and she was also she was also the third, uh, the third. Uh, um, the third accomplice, the third, the third accomplice in the crime. That's why I kind of kept her in the background. But I want to, yeah. uh, anyways, r- before we dive into all that, I want to thank uh, everyone who's been hanging out in the live stream. We have a uh, quad hanging out. Kate is here. King Casher is here again. Uh, Selchuk is up in here. A uh, lot, lot of people joining. Soph just showed up. Thank you for, uh, thank you for joining. And then Alice uh, is there. Alex. Yeah. And Stephanie's here as well. Yeah. Thanks for everybody that's watching the live stream. So, witchcraft, I was shocked that we got into a witchcraft story already. Mm-hmm. Because you would think that our first one would probably be like the Salem Witch Trials or something. So I actually think it's more fun that we started with a less known one uh, yeah. for our, our purposes. Much less known to a point where there wasn't very much footage to dig up or photos, which is why we chose to shoot it ourselves. So it was uh, it was definitely a fun experience. But let's jump into it. So it all started with, I mean, this whole community down here in like, uh, in Pennsylvania, they a, a lot of them practice powwow. Now, it's not necessarily witchcraft. If you use it for good, it's technically a form of Christianity. I mean, they still do the cross and they still believe in Christianity, but they use this um, this book basically as a guide on how to cast like certain healing spells. And they would basically use it as an alternative to medicine at the time. So you would have certain um, spells that you could do for a headache all the way up to you know, removing warts or um, curing rabid dogs, which you heard about in the, uh, in the episode, there was a lot of different things that you could do with, um, with different, uh, different spells. And I actually picked up a copy of the book. Pow. Pow. Wow. There it is. There's Pow-wow. the Pow Wow. Yeah. Long lost friend uh, written by John, uh, John Hoffman. So th- this is, Interesting, because I saw three different spellings of his last name. There was Homan, H-O-H-M-A-N. This book right here says Hoffman, which I wonder if this guy, John Hoffman, just was like, hey, my name is similar. I'm going to rewrite the book. And then I also saw jo- um, John Herman. So I don't know if this is just websites getting it wrong or if there's actually just everyone gets his name wrong or, or what. But that's what we were dealing with there. But the, I was flipping through the book, and it's um, there are some wacky things that you can do. <laughs> so, and people still practice it today. That's that's the even crazier thing about it is uh, I was watching a documentary on the killing, which was actually really well done. And there's a bunch of people down in Pennsylvania that still do powwow magic, but you, you find that most of them are Christians. Now, here's where it can go bad: is there are people who use their powwow magic for good, and then there are ones that would use it for bad. And if they use it bad, that's where it crosses the line into witchcraft, which is what brings us to this entire insane story that we're at right now. Well, it also depends on like, so like just to go back a bit, witchcraft isn't always used for evil. It just gets that negative connotation, right? So it all depends on what you're actually, which Mm -hmm. kind of witchcraft you're performing. And like you said, this powwow one is, is, um, I'm just gonna. Remember. Yeah, it's, I'm so distracted. Dave's just trying to find something more interesting to watch. 
We got a new, we got a new remote. We got a new remote for the screen, and it's an absolute piece of shit. <laughs> Worse than the broken one was. Uh, for the listeners, Davis, Davis spent this entire opening of this episode trying to find the right channel on his TV to play the hometown ghost stories background or whatever you're doing there. Anyways, he ended yeah, up playing but, a nice advertisement for a razor who got some free advertising on the channel. So that's great. Uh, yeah, but anyways, witchcraft, it just, it, it has a negative connotation, but it's not always used for evil. So this is one of those communities that mostly was trying to use it for good and, you know, it got turned sideways. Right. It was one of those things where it's like a lot of, I mean, it was a relatively poor community. It was up and coming. Actually, the ironic thing is this Kate, this case brought so much spotlight to this little community that it it actually started to thrive afterwards i wouldn't say it's a direct correlation but it did happen to do really well after they got national media attention so i don't know if they pulled the salem witch on them and started branding everything after witches or something and that boosted the economy but they actually ended up uh turning around a little bit there so there was that um so the the thing is it was a it was a rather poor community before all this happened and they would seek out powwowing as an alternative to medicine. It was cheaper and they believed in it at the time. And some people would get results and for, for them, I mean, if it works, it works, but, uh, but that, that would also turn into when things weren't going their way. And if Mm. their family was getting sick or if their farm started to fail and their crops started to fail and their animals were getting sick, they would immediately be like, well, someone put a hex on me and I got to figure out who put this curse on my farm and my family. And this is where things can turn into what you saw here with this case. Yeah. And it's also interesting with the main guy, John, who was so sick as a kid. And this is the guy that helped save him. Mm -hmm. Like when he was, well, theoretically from what their beliefs are, because after he went and saw him and performed his, whatever ritual he performed on him, he was better the next day. I mean, he got sick again later in life and then Mm -hmm. got well again. But this is the guy that went there who wasn't even like this wasn't his full time job. And John's family full time job was to do powwow stuff. Right. That's why. They so, yep. yeah. So like they have this farmer who is revered as like this great healer who isn't even doing this full time. He's just doing it on the side and comes and helps this guy. And it backfires on him years and years later. It does. This is the guy that helped him. And the going theory for skeptics or people who don't believe in powwow magic is that John was just malnourished and he basically went home and was like, okay, go home and fix your diet. And that was kind of the spell and it just, it did help him. So I think there's, there might've been some practicality mixed in with some of this powwow magic. And in certain cases, if you see something obvious, like this kid is scrawny, he needs to eat more, drink more water or something, then he could have been fixed. Now he, he had, he had issues his entire life, which is why they assumed it was like a 20 year hex. But in reality, he was, in, he was, I was going to say insanely mentally unstable, which makes more sense than I meant it to make. But he was, uh, he was mentally unstable. He was actually in and out of mental institutions a few times. And then the final time he escaped, which in all reality, he just walked out the front door and walked home. Uh, however, the, I think it's the Harrisville. I, I would say that's a well-executed escape. <laughs> Nailed it, yeah. <laughs> you don't have to do more than you got to do, you know? Yeah. You can walk out the front door, then that's fine. But he he did walk from the asylum. It's now closed. I think it closed rather uh, recently. I think back in like 2005 or like the late 90s. But I, I believe it was Harrisville or Harrisburg. He walked back mm-hmm. to York, which is about a 25-mile walk, which is a long walk. But um, 
not exactly going to call for a ride. Hey, dad, I just right. escaped the mental institution. <laughs> so anyways, um, clearly he wasn't right in the head. The, the, the people that assessed his um, intelligence level had him at a super low IQ at the time. They would just call him a borderline idiot, which was the term. That's the term we use for Dave now, but for, for people at that time, it was just for people with really low IQ. So, As demonstrated by Dave trying to turn on and off his TV <laughs> earlier. How high does your IQ have to be to operate a TV? Uh, don't ask John Blymer. But, uh, so clearly he had, to, he, had a, he had a lot of mental issues, and, and he was convinced that he was just under this perpetual hex. And he was forever just trying to figure out who was hexing him, his father, his grandfather, they were both powwow uh, healers and they were all just trying to figure out like who, who did it over all these years. And you had mentioned about John Raymar that um, this wasn't his full-time job. He was, he had a really successful farm and this kind of Nel- played Nelson Raymar. What did I say? John, because there's so many, Johns. Uh, so many Johns. And there are yeah. so many Johns in the story. So I get yeah. it, but just yeah, to I, keep, the I had to go back. I had to go back in the audio and, and replace them all the times I've got the names wrong. But yeah, there's two Johns. The, there was both the murderers, but the, um, for Nelson, he had a very successful farm and he was also really good at powwowing. And yeah. this kind of played into later on in the story. They're thinking, well, how come all the farms in the area suck and his farm is really good. Now let's not, rule out the fact that maybe he was just good at farming, but they right. assume, but well, maybe he is placing a hex on everybody else. And all these people that are coming here for healing, maybe they aren't actually getting healed. Maybe they're actually getting cursed by this bad doctor. It's just, it's just insane to me that so many people in the area all believed in this. Now there was a lot of German Im- immigrants and I guess they, this was like a European folk magic and they kind of brought it over and they, they believe yeah, Pennsylvania stuff. Dutch originated in Germany. Mm-hmm. So, you see That's, that still, like you see that all throughout history, even now, where like if you have like this like isolated group of people, right? Mm-hmm. And for the most part, they're isolated there around that time period. If one person's doing good, it can't just be because they're good. It has to be because of witchcraft, the devil, they sold their soul to the devil. Mm-hmm. It's like insert random reason here. It's never because, oh, he's just a good farmer. He knows what he's doing. It's, why am I not that good? And then they all mob up and just, you know, plot the downfall of the one person that's doing well. Imagine selling your soul to the devil for potatoes. I mean, which I find somewhat surprising about this is that it's not really in the era of like the, the, the witch craze that went on. This is the like 1920s, right? Like late 1920s. Right. Correct. Yep. There were like early hunts, really. Yeah. Um, it was you know, there was like the it wasn't anything obviously like the the, the witch trials of the 1600s or even like the 17 and 1800s. This is mm-hmm. like like right like in between the world wars, so right for them to I be so crazy about like the, the witch thing. So if mm-hmm. she sells her soul for potatoes every day, I understand. I understand. Uh, what was crazy about this, and you in as you mentioned that like this was kind of when the wit, the witch craze was over this actually triggered a brand new witch craze. So then there was a lot of connected cases, not connected, but a lot of cases they would be like, okay, well he must be a witch. And it was like, kind of like this late 1600s all over again. So they started, they, you would, it, there was a string of, uh, of killer, you know, murders that tied back to powwow magic or some kind of witchcraft. And they, they kind of started this whole hysteria over again. Now they didn't go rounding up and burning witches, but it was brought up in trials and this created the, the media latched onto it like they did before. And it was just like, it's the witches, you know, and, and they, they just immediately started associating all powwow magic with bad magic. And all reality is just basically Christianity with some extra silly steps. 
just like they did in the 1970s and 80s with the satanic panic stuff where yeah. like if anything happened it was because oh must they're be a, a satanist must be a cult must you know like and and they would just find ways to, it's because of this music it's the rock and roll music you know which is stuff that you hear walking into a grocery store now is the stuff that they were like freaking out about back then so yeah the media does play a big portion into uh you know riling up the people when it comes to witchcraft or satanism or anything like that they just they it's a story it's it helps sell papers yeah you're absolutely right and it's it's but it's being attributed to cases that probably have nothing to do with it like right. i said if exactly. you're not using this kind of magic for for bad if you're not putting hexes out on people then this stuff is basically just an alternative to medicine there's right. really no bad hexes in it. I mean, obviously, I haven't read everything on powwow, but from what I've been reading on powwow, it's basically just it's a lot of like herbal medicine and like rituals, and a lot of it, you know, Andrew said spicy Christian Christianity, but it really is just regular Christianity. It's all based and rooted from the sixth and seventh books of Moses. Um, As this is basically just, I can, I can tell you that while there's elements of what you said is correct. If you read this book and read some of the silly things that they have you do to cure certain things, you're going to be like, okay, this has this has nothing to do with the Bible. Po- poking, an, poking a hole in a boiled egg and filling it with urine and then letting it sit outside for three nights and I mean, doing the sign of the cross over there. I don't think that's in the Bible. If you give me 12 hours, I'll, I'll find some silly rituals in the Bible too. Like, <laughs> I'm sure there's some silly stuff. But you go through this. Like, I, half the things I was reading through this book, and I don't mean to – if people believe in power magic, I'm not trying to um, make fun of it, but you go through some of these things and – I, at first, I was like, "Did I get the right book, or did I get a joke book?" Because some of this stuff is a, uh, it's just it's it's uh it's crazy to me. It's just different, you know. I don't want to, I don't want to make fun of any powwow practitioners out there. Like the herbal medicine and, and the, some of the healing rituals they have in there is not you're not finding a lot of evil or dark rituals like no, you there's in yeah there's there's nothing about hexes or curses as far as I've read in this book, and I've flipped through most of it, and from everything that I've heard about from different listening to different interviews with powwow. Uh, healers and you know people that practice it today they they it has nothing to do with this, this book or what they practice there's other books on it as well so right. but so the, the spectrum of magical books is very wide you have powwow on one side and you have like shamsam arif on the other yes. exactly totally yeah. different both magic but yeah. right but this plays into the case in a few ways so basically this was kind of like I mean, they had their Bible and then they had this, which you might consider like, we'll call it the spell book. I don't want to call it a Bible because they're actually mostly Christians as well. Um, in fact, Ray Meyer's funeral was held in a Christian church. So he was Christian as well. But the the book played a few roles. For one, it was where they got their spells from. A lot of them you know, went to this book for their everyday healing and the different ways that they were practiced. But it also served as a book of protection. So they felt that as long as you had your copy of this book in your position, possession somewhere in your house, um, it would protect you from enemies. So if someone came, let's say, to steal a lock of your hair and burn your book, you know, you, you, you might be safe or if someone tried to kill you or whatever. So this book was supposed to be a book that would, um, that would save you from these situations, which was why the River Witch – uh, had instructed them that not only did they need to get a lock of his hair and bury it underground, they also need to burn a copy of his book because this would be his protection book and that would break his curse. 
Did you um, read anything about some of the healing? Like, supposedly John himself was a very good powwow person in the community. Did you read any of those stories? Because I read a few of those. His reputation was shaky, but there was a few. I included a few of the stories in the episode. Uh, I think it was a lot of his friends had trusted him. And actually, the Hess family, who was uh, one of the Wilbert Hess, their son, they had given him a car and let him drive these killers to go take care of uh, Nelson Raymire. I don't know if they knew that he was going to kill him at the time, but he was basically their sacrificial lamb. Uh, they had hired John Blymer to help them break the curse that was causing their crops to fail. So they had kind of a rival um, farm against the Raymires or whatever. They had, but they had their own farm, and it just was doing very poorly. The animals were sick, the crops were failing, everything like that. And uh, so they had hired Blymer to figure out who was who had placed this curse on on their farm. And he hadn't come up with any solid results yet. And this is where, this is my working theory on this. Let's throw all magic and mental illness out the window. Not all of it. We're going to keep a little bit of the mental illness illness towards the end here. But I think what you're dealing with here was a group of people who collectively saw that Nelson Raymire was a threat. Not because he was doing any danger, but because he was just really successful. So for one... He was successful with his farm. He had a very good farm. Crops were great. Animals were healthy. He was doing really well. So he was competition for the Hess family, who was down the street. And they were not only doing poorly on their farm, but they also realized that he's doing really well. If he wasn't doing so well, we would be doing better ourselves. Now, he was also competition for the Marietta, or I think it's Marietta. I might have pronounced it wrong in the episode, but I think it's Anyways, he was also competition for the Marietta River Witch because not only was he really good at farming, but he was also really good at doing powwow healing. So he was taking all of her customers. And I think what you dealt with was not necessarily that they were all connected with each other. Blymere was kind of the connection to all of these groups. But you dealt with everyone having a mutual agreement that Raymire had to go. And they got this one crazy guy who shows up and they're like, okay, this guy's going to take out the competition. Let's let him do the dirty work. The River Witch is happy. The Hess family is happy. Nelson Raymire is gone. I don't know if they thought they, they were going to murder him. Maybe they did believe there was a hex. But the Marietta River Witch um, seemed to orchestrate the whole thing. And when, when he showed up on her doorstep, um, I think she saw the possibility to, to take him out. That, but, that's my theory on it. But the other thing I found crazy about him showing up at her doorstep was he had to go there like five or six times before she would give him a name. Mm-hmm. So like he went there and she's like, oh, you're hexed. Come back later for more information. So he had to come back, pay again. And it was like, well, it's like, it's somebody. Come back later and I'll tell you more. And then just like kept right. progressively like getting closer. And it's like, it's somebody that you knew from your childhood, you know, like it, it just like would just zone in until like the six or seven time where she was like, Hey, this is who it is. So right, and she may have not even. Get, I mean, maybe she knew the information. He probably said it. I mean, this guy's crazy, but he probably said it in a previous session that was like, "Yeah, I got healed when I was a child by Nelson Raymire." Mm. And I, then think, I think, good. I think that this guy legitimately believed that this was a witch that he was practicing witchcraft, and I think he be- legitimately believed that he was under a hex because when John Blymire was convicted and sentenced. He stood up and he was like unfazed by the conviction. And he said, uh, I believe he quoted something on the lines of the witch is gone. The witch is dead. I can 
I can live my life in peace now. Yeah, he was basically saying, like, I can eat and sleep in peace, and this is no, fine. I, I think what Jesse's saying, though, like, not to speak for him, but John Blymeyer believed it. But it was people around him that led him to believe it so that they could help themselves. Mm. So that, like, they manipulated somebody that they thought they could manipulate into carrying out their bidding to make their lives easier. Maybe they didn't think he was going to kill them, but mm-hmm. they they definitely knew who they were dealing with. It, I'm just going off your theory from what you're going with. No, I think it, I, I agree with both of you. I 100% think that he did believe that he was under a hex. He was, he was cursed. Yeah. He clearly practiced the stuff. He was a healer himself. So clearly he bought into this stuff because he was practicing it himself. Um, and then, I mean, shit, if, you, if you're going the take out the competition route, Raymeyer was also competition to him as well. So you could even put him on the list, but I, I do genuinely think that he believed um, in witchcraft. I do believe that he thought that there was a hex put on him, a curse put on him, and as soon as he got that name, um, that was it. And, and just to go back to the witch real quick. We had said you know he was paying for these sessions. These weren't cheap sessions either. So I believe he was paying five dollars per session, which that sounds really cheap. But at the time, that was yeah. about half of. Uh, what you would pay for rent at the time, like half a month. Yeah. So that's, I mean, he's doing two sessions. He's he's paying a whole month's rent right there. Right. They weren't making a lot of money. I mean, we had said in the beginning of the episode he was picking potatoes for twenty five cents a day. So that's probably a whole day's work for twenty five cents. So he was paying good money to this witch, and I think that she had realized that he had reached a boiling point where he's like, I don't. I think she thought maybe she couldn't milk this these sessions anymore. She's probably like, he he's not going to come back, so I might as well lead him on. And she knew that. Probably he uh, was going to jump to conclusions there. So she had led him on with the whole, this is a man who healed you as a child. Yeah. I mean, he's so crazy. She, she could have just been relaying this information that he gave her last week. He probably forgot. And, um, and then she did the dollar bill thing. And, it, you know, if you look at your palm long enough in the dark candlelight, you'll probably see what you want to see. Yeah. You're being led to see something and, you know, but who's to say that he didn't see that? I don't know. Mm-hmm. Like, I, I'm I'm not going to say that he did or didn't, but I, I definitely know that when you're looking for something, you're more likely to see it because yeah. because just that thought's in your head. Um, but, yeah, I mean, like, who knows what he actually saw there, what manipulation he saw. I, I saw a thing saying that it was on the dollar bill and that George Washington's face warped. And turned into what's his name's face, but I think yeah. that's just semantics on the story. To be honest with you, it doesn't yeah, matter I mean, which way he saw it. It's it reminds it's what me he of saw. Um, when we were at the Houghton Mansion. They stuck us in that little room with the mirror and the yes, lantern, the the candlelight there. And they said if you just stare at your face in the mirror and the candlelight, and you're going to start to see your face like warp. And you did if you stared long enough. I I did. I saw it, and it was just like you look long enough, and it's just weird things start to distort. So I feel like that could be the same kind of psychological trick. Right. You're looking for it. I, uh, I completely agree. The, yeah, that, well, that plays into, and we had talked about this, obviously on the Houghton mansion episode, but you're in this little, we were in this little dark room and there was a candle and a mirror. And basically you sat in this tiny, it was basically a closet that was painted black and you sat there. The only light source was a little flickering candle underneath you and your mind just plays tricks on you. And it's like, like you, yeah, if I sit here, I'm gonna go. I'm gonna go insane if I stay in here for more than thirty minutes. You know, we've done enough episodes that when you said when we did the Houghton Mansion episode, that I had to go. Wait a minute, did we do a Houghton Mansion <laughs> episode? And I was like, Oh yeah, yeah, we did, we did, we did, yeah, we did. So, I think uh, I think he could have could have seen something there. Um, 
and that that led him to to go back. So then let's go to the Hess family. So before we do real quick, we have we have Dana in the chat who says that it's an interesting topic for her because she lives near York, PA. If you have any uh, stories about what you've seen in regards to this type of stuff, just throw it in the comments. Or if we're getting any or everything wrong about this, you just let us know. Feel yeah. free to correct us. Um, so then you had uh, the the two people that he brought on. So we had 14-year-old Rob. Or yeah. Rob, played, Rob played him anyways, but that was John Curry. So yeah. John was the second John. This kid was basically, I mean, he's 14 years old. He was easily manipulated. He was abused at home by, I don't know if it was officially his stepfather, but his mother's new boyfriend or whatever. Um, he's beating the bag out of him. He worked with Blymer at the cigar factory. So that's how they knew each other. And since then, uh, Blymer had become kind of a transient and he was bouncing between being homeless, having a job, getting married briefly, losing a couple of kids. Obviously he had a, a very rough go of it, but he knew Curry and he had gone to him. He knew that he was having a rough time at home. So he just goes up to him once he got this news from the witch and he's like, you know, you must be, you're clearly cursed. And he believed in it as well. He's like, yeah, I must be cursed. He's like, well, I know who's doing it. I know it's Raymeyer and brought him on board. And that's where you had the first encounter. Was this kid actually 14 or are you just saying 14 year old out of, he was actually 14 years old. And this is the person they brought on because, because Raymeyer was too big. No, he was the first one they brought on. So it was, it was, um, Blymeyer and the two Johns. So yeah, John, John Blymeyer and John Curry. These were the two that went by the house the first time. Me and Jesse. That, which was me and, me and Rob. Yeah. So they swung by the house and he opened the door and then they're just reminded of how massive this guy is. And Blymeyer was a scrawny dude anyways. They said he barely weighed a hundred pounds. Like he was just withering away. So tiny little guy, obviously I'm really jacked. So it was it, we're tight cast here, but it was slim pickings yeah. Yeah. for the cast. But the, they get there and he welcomes them in and they actually have a great time, which is crazy because they're drinking all night to a point where it's so late that he's like, why don't you just spend the night? They probably could have just crept up while he was sleeping and cut off a lock of his hair. Yeah. And then maybe while well, he, found I mean, the you're, book. In his, you're in his house. Yeah. Find the book, find the book, look around, yeah. but the, these idiots just go to bed and they wake up the next morning. And, um, Dimitri like, 86 says, so jacked. Thank you. Dimitri 86. <laughs> I don't know if we've met. Um, <laughs> The, <laughs> um, yeah, yeah so, but, so but find the book while you're there. Like, like instead, their decision is let's do this the most difficult way possible. How much harder can we make this? Let's go home and we'll come back at what, like midnight the next night, and that's when we're gonna start everything. When he's on high alert, because like, why are we there at midnight? Mm-hmm. Our excuse is we forgot something. Okay, it's midnight. Why are you here at midnight to get it? Yeah. Get it in the morning. Still lets them in the house. Like, yeah, it's, it's crazy how nervous they were the first night and how just ready they were the second night with one more gather. But anyway, so so they get breakfast, they leave, they go to a hardware store, they, they buy a rope, they cut the rope into 14 five-foot lengths. So they're getting ready to tie them up and subdue them if they need to. Um, mm-hmm. That was the two Johns. They went back to um, John Curry's room that he was renting to go prepare for the night. And then they went straight to the Hess farm. When we talked about this earlier, this was, um, I think it was P.D. Hess was the father, you know, um, and then he had his sons and his wife living there. And they were, they had hired John Blymer. That's how they knew him. And he, we, are, we already talked about this. We don't have to discuss it any, any further. But they had decided, they're like, okay, well, you know what? You can take the car and you can have Wilbert drive you down there to go take care of this once and for all. And the angle that 
Hess's lawyer took in the court case was that he's a victim here. His family just made him the sacrificial lamb. They knew what was going to happen here mm. and they just decided to send him out. So that's why he was the only one who ended up with second degree murder. And yep. he got 10 years while the other guys got life in prison. And I in a fit of irony, he's the only one who actually served this entire sentence. So he served this full 10 years. Obviously the other guy stayed in jail longer than he did. We'll get into the aftermath later, but anyway, so uh, they send their sacrifice, their poor sacrificial lamb Wilbert out. He, t- he drives these guys down there. And then this is when uh, the murder takes place and things go out of hand. There's a bunch of different accounts of what happened inside. In reality, in the court case, nobody ever admitted to dealing the final blow. So they don't really know who killed right. him. It's Shocker. assumed it's assumed that Blymere did, but it really seems like once things took off, Curry actually was was going nuts. Like he was the one that picked up the, the piece of wood. He was the one that was kicking him in the head and everything. It's like it seemed like some kind of demon was released in in Curry that that this this kid was a, and he was the youngest one, the fourteen year old who was the killer. So, but it could have been any of them. But they get in there, they they tie him down. The demon and, was adrenaline. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. So they think he's dead. Uh, they choke him, and uh, he was bleeding from the ears. So the the thought is that his uh, brain had hemorrhaged when he got hit in the head. Those things happen, and um, so they they pour kerosene on him and they light him on fire. And they expect this to burn the house. They didn't want to. I don't know why at this point they didn't just cut a lock of his hair out. Maybe they didn't think they had time to bury it before someone found out what was going on or something. But they light his body on fire and they leave and they turn around expecting to see the house go up in flames. And this is when you kind of have your first ghost sighting at the house, which by the way, this is a ghost episode. <laughs> um, <laughs> and so you had your first ghost sighting at the house, which is these, these flames went up and there's a few different theories about what could have happened here, but they saw someone moving around inside the fire and their thought was he was already dead. We strangled him. He, he was bleeding from the ears. He right. must have been dead, but they saw someone moving around the flames and then they saw the fire go out. But Nelson Raymire was dead. Now, there's a few things that could have happened here. Number one is they could have been seeing things. I mean, they they were all hyped up on adrenaline. They just murdered someone. It's late. They were probably drinking. It's who knows what they could have seen. Mm-hmm. Theory number two is that might have been Nelson Raymire. He might right. not have been dead. He might have got up, said, oh, shit, my house is on fire. And either he was trying to escape or he might have been uh, trying to put out the fire, save his house. So died from inhaling smoke. Yep. So on this one, I saw like his nephew or something said that he was just extremely lucky, and basically the floor burnt out, and they think he might have. He was so lucky because he was on a beam; it didn't mm-hmm. fall down with the fire. And I'm just sitting there like, lucky. This dude is a weird choice of words. Lucky is a weird choice of words because now he's just he's on fire and he's dealing with the smoke, and you know, and. uh yeah, so that's weird. And also, Stephanie in the chat said, this is why you pour kerosene everywhere, not just on the corpse. So we will not be saying anything bad about Stephanie I'm in the future. Sure. I since think she knows I, how to go. I know. <laughs> she uh, knows I how it's done. Maybe Andrew can correct me on this one, but I think kerosene is a super slow-burning fuel and is not ideal if you want to burn a house down. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's what I know about kerosene. I also, Rob, Andrew, I saw, I Andrew, I saw Andrew's, a, Andrew's a firefighter. He's not an expert on burning down. He's an arsonist. <laughs> He's a serial arsonist. <laughs> Him and Stephanie are going to link up and take care of business. <laughs> Anyways, the, um, yeah, so he could have been draped. So his body was draped. He was basically in this hole in the floor. He, his body was draped over this uh, beam in the floor. Yeah. And 
the going theory is that either his, I don't know if this is exactly what you said, but the fluids from his body could have put out the fire or the fact that yeah, which is his body, yeah, his body was on fire. It was that hole or whatever. And, um, he had a potato bin or potato barrel. I don't know how potato farmers do it, but it was hanging from that same beam in the basement and it was basically moist from all the, those wet potatoes. I'm explaining this poorly and that could have extinguished the fire, but, um, Anderson's, I think that is an extremely far-fetched to think that the fluid leaking out of your body is going to put out the fire before you burn to death. That's To me, that's ridiculous. Well, no, he could have been dead, but the fluids from his dead body could have put out, extinguished the flames. Yeah, there's not much. That would blow him. So, so you got to think that the, <clears throat> the, fl- the hole in the floor burnt out, what was on fire probably collapsed around him, and his body's just draped over this beam and just leaking blood and fluids and could have extinguished whatever was blown. Plus... Um, at that point, it's up on the basement floor, which is probably dirt anyways at that time. I do like this, that. This is going everyone... to be a weird uh, segue here, but I, I grill a lot of meats, and the meat drips onto the coals. And it never right, you're a man. We get it. Fire. We get it. You're a man. We understand. <laughs> All right. Relax. I do like that a... Um... Uh, how to dispose of a body chat is breaking out in all of our <laughs> yeah, chats right now. I support the life saving. I support the life saving potato theory. We can't talk about we can't talk about potatoes around Soph anymore. She gets too into it. She's all yeah. fired up. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. So like, it's just it's a crazy, crazy story. Then the hauntings. All right. So do not throw rocks at this house. I and, I couldn't wait to mention that. Like, don't be like, that asshole. Like, who are who are these people that are whipping rocks? And then I who's was, like the ones telling about they're it? They're the same idiots that kicked over Bathsheba Sherman's grave. All yeah. right, that's fair. But you're throwing rocks at a house. I, yeah. I almost didn't even include it in the episode because I was like, if someone listens to this and goes and tests this out, this is my fault. It's my fault that someone's just throwing rocks at a house now. And uh, but yeah, apparently one of the theories is if you throw rocks at the house, something will throw a rock back. But I'm gonna go on the record same theory here about Jesse's say, house. Don't actually. try it. Hey, fuck you, Dave. <laughs> <laughs> no, definitely don't go throwing rocks at a house. That is ridiculous. And this isn't the the episode where Dave just told you not to read a book 16 times because he wants you to read the book. Literally, don't go do this. Um, do not read the powwow book. <laughs> what, what is the significance of the dog in the forest? Do Apparently we know? It has some correlation with witchcraft, um, according to one of the podcasts that I've listened to. But... I haven't looked into that yet, but apparently seeing a ghost dog with glowing red eyes is, I mean, that'd be pretty creepy. And apparently they say that the whole forest surrounding, it's got so many names, but it's, it's now like a state park, I believe like spring something state park. And it was Ray Myers hollow. The road leading up to it is still Ray Myers hollow road, according to Google maps. And then after the whole hexing and witch trial, they started calling it hex hollow, which is where you get the name of the episode. So it's called a lot of things. Um, but the, the dog I find interesting because like, it it just, like you said, it's part of the witchcraft. So like, is it, is it vengeful or is it a protecting type situation? Is that dog protecting the area? Oh, protecting the area. I was going to say, if I saw a dog with glowing red eyes, I would assume it's not there to protect me, but is it protecting the forest and the grounds? Now I understand. Yeah. Yeah. But is it, is it something in terms of that witchcraft that he conjured to protect his to protect his area after he was gone and protect well, his family that, that left him because I don't even know if you got into that. You did. You actually did get into it. How his wife was living down the road a, a ways with some other family members. 
Yep. Because she was sick of the witchcraft. Well, she was, yeah. Whether it was the witchcraft or uh, it was, she was just tired of strain. I mean, they had two young daughters and they had people yeah. showing up at all hours of the day and night. And I mean, I, yeah, if I was raising two little girls, I wouldn't want random dudes just showing up. I'm here for some healing. Uh, but just to touch on the black dog before we move on, uh, according to Wikipedia, the black dog is a supernatural, spectral, or demonic entity originating from English folklore that has also been seen throughout Europe and the Americas. It is usually unnaturally large with glowing red or yellow eyes, uh-huh. yeah. often connected with the devil um, and sometimes an omen of death. Well, that was creepier than I expected it to be. Yeah, yeah. it really got nice. dark there. <laughs> it did. So other than that, the fact that the house is still standing is super interesting. I understand that it it didn't burn down from mm-hmm. the fire, but the fact that they salvaged this house and it's still there is is pretty yeah. fascinating and okay. seeing his ghost in there. Right. So there isn't a ton of paranormal stuff linked to this. Obviously, the we have these stories and people have caught EVPs out in the woods and people trespass on the property and mm-hmm. the owner is not up for this kind of stuff, but um, the house is abandoned now. He doesn't live in it, but he's still, uh, it's the great grandson who owns it and cares for it. And he wanted to hurt, turn the house into a museum. Mm-hmm. So that's why in the photos that I showed of the burnt out floor, there's a glass, uh, plate over it, a, a sheet of plexiglass or something over it. Uh, right. they still have it original to, they never fixed the floor. They just left it as is, which is also crazy. Cause I'm pretty sure he rented out the house for a number of years. I don't know how they got around that, whether they put something over it or something <laughs> Maybe right. that's where the dinner table went, but, uh, it's a, it's a bad, yeah. So it, it's vacant now. Um, it is closely monitored. I've seen a bunch of people on YouTube that have gone there to go investigate and you know, the cops are there within five minutes and the guy shows up yelling at him and stuff. So, uh, I would not recommend trespassing on the property. You can drive by it. You can take pictures from the road. But other than that, I would not um, entertain it much. But they had done a few things back, I think, in 2013. They were doing, like, hay rides and tours of the house. Mm-hmm. I just think that it might be one of those situations um, where the, it's in a residential neighborhood and they don't want that kind of traffic or uh, business activity going on inside their quiet neighborhood. So what, what, So while, we were, while we're, we're wrapping this up, what brought you to this story? Read it in a book. So yeah. I was just going through and, and he started telling the story and I was like, wait a second. Cause it was, it was one of those books with, with a bunch of different haunted right. stories. Yeah. And I'm sitting there and I'm like, this guy's, I had to make sure that it wasn't somewhat some fiction stories and some true stories. I was like, this is insane. Mm-hmm. Like we're talking 1928 and there's all these people that believe in witchcraft and this person's hexing this person. And everybody that you ran into this story, every, every single person that's connected with the story was like, yes, I'm cursed too. And it's, it's just that it wasn't one person. I was like, no, relax. None of you are cursed. <laughs> and uh, so that, that, that's why I had to, I had to double check. I was like, this story is, is insane. And th- I'll tell you the one thing, the one thing that sold me on this house mm-hmm. was I was flipping through the book. I can't remember which book it was, but I was flipping through the book and on the final page of the book, I saw a picture of the house. And if you haven't seen this, this house, yeah. if you're just listening to it, uh, check out our video on YouTube or just Google a picture of the hex hollow house. It'll pop right up. It was just, I was like, how is this house? This house is still standing. It's still a real house. And then I just, then I went down the rabbit hole of looking up YouTube videos of people showing up to the house and stuff. I realized it wasn't a good idea. Cash, I brought up the idea of driving down to Pennsylvania to check it out. But I'm like, I don't know if I'm going to drive all the way to Pennsylvania just to get kicked out within five minutes. <laughs> so we have we to go down to Pennsylvania too. and hit all the Pennsylvania locations we've covered. 
Yeah, yeah. Since we're doing a whole series on Pennsylvania, apparently. But and we have so many more. Like we have the prison we have to do at some point. So there's a lot of Pennsylvania yeah. stuff. Actually, the mental institution or the asylum or the hospital that he was at and that he escaped from is one of the most haunted locations in Pennsylvania. Is it the one? Oh, Pittsburgh? is it? They're all the most haunted places in Pennsylvania. <laughs> but the uh, but that one is uh, that one I believe actually one of those ghost tour websites, like they, they host things at that actual hospital. So mm-hmm. that is another, that's interesting. Is it, I mean, it should maybe Blymere's ghost is haunting that one. Oh, and the other thing we should touch on before we move on from this is the other murder, which upon reading the facts of the case, he definitely, in my opinion, was guilty of, of shooting that other girl. So there was really? Gertrude, Gertrude Rudy. Mm-hmm. Um, he was basically dating this girl, I guess. And she was like infatuated with him. She was seen going in and out of, in and out of his place uh, there were, I read a few reports that she was pregnant and then she got shotgunned in the face, close range. His, uh, John's uncle happened to his, his shotgun happened to go missing around the same time. Never saw it again. His entire family is positive that he did, uh, that he killed this girl. And then what, uh, what the killer did was he dumped her, her body on the train tracks and hoped that a train would come and just destroy the evidence. But there was a, a, an what opera- a theory. Well, I, mean, like, I get the idea. Like, well, the fire well, the only, work, so. <laughs> well, no, this was before. This is a few years before the Raymire thing. So uh, he dumped her body on the train tracks, and um, she would have been hit by the train, but there happened to be a guy who switches the railroad tracks, you know, how they switch them over to change direction or whatever. Uh, that, that kind of train operator, I don't know what, they, what they're called, but he had showed up, and he just saw the body on the tracks before he switched it over, had his lantern, spotted the body, um, and then he was able to stop the train. So if that guy wasn't there, her body might have been destroyed, but um, he was never convicted. So they thought she was pregnant. They thought maybe that's why he shot her or maybe just because he's an insane person. And um, they had, he was the the lead suspect. They all thought it was him, but they just couldn't find any evidence to tie him to the crime. And I'm convinced. Guilty. Exactly. Oh, that's that's all it. So <laughs> <laughs> um, that was probably his first killer or his first kill. And they brought it up in the trial. Now, this is where things get a little bit shaky there was sherwood who was the actual judge in the case and then the prosecuting prosecuting attorney i'm pretty sure was sherman who later became a judge so if you go back and listen to the episode i talk about judge sherwood and then i talk about judge sherman there were not two judges on the case there was one judge on the case one prosecuting attorney so the names are similar anyways um but it gets confusing because that lawyer ended up becoming a judge later in the life later in life Uh, and um good Oh, just real quick, Stephanie says, don't rule out the Amish hauntings while in Pennsylvania, mm-hmm. which I do have a story about that, but we will not get into that now. Okay. Anyways, to wrap this thing up, um, while Blymer was on the stand, uh, the prosecuting attorney went right in on him about the Gertrude Rudy case, or it might be Ruby, but I'm pretty sure it's definitely Gertrude. You don't forget that first name. But he went right in on him, and he's like, uh, "Did she? Did she believe in powwow magic?" He's like, "I don't know why you're asking." He's like, "Well, did she beg for her life before you shot her in the face?" And he just, I guess, he just broke down and started crying. And uh, he was like, "I had nothing to do with that." And I guess the, it's weird that that was even allowed in the court. It's a different time. That's true. Definitely yeah. a different time. So, th- so the judge on the case threw out any mentions of witchcraft. But if you want to mention an unrelated murder that he wasn't found guilty of, have at it. Let's make yeah. him cry. That's <laughs> uh, yeah, poor courtroom etiquette, but. Um, I feel like they had a chip on their shoulder from never being able to prosecute him on the first one. So whether or not there was an objection and they threw that out uh, for the jury jury to deliberate, um, 
which it took them all of, I believe it was 15 minutes for them to reach a verdict, but I, I think they sat around for like a, an extra half hour before they came out and, and read that he was guilty of first degree. Uh, Captain McSoe says, welcome to Hex Hollow where everyone is a witch, has the same name, and the houses throw rocks <laughs> at you. <laughs> Fair. Yeah. Well, that was definitely a fun episode. Of medium, medium come in and ruin everything this time. Not I know. Yeah. Just, just nonstop witches left and right. <laughs> so yeah, that, that, that story was a wild ride. That's why I wanted to cover it. Yeah. Uh, with regard crazy. to the, um, to the, the dog that we were talking about earlier, D actually commented, is that the same idea as the black cat where they're talking about the demonic reference. And since we're talking about witches, the black cat in the correlation with witches is interesting because that actually goes all the way back to the Salem witch trials when, because the witches would keep black cats and they would actually hunt the witches down. And when they hanged the witches, they would also execute the cats right along with them. And then because they believed that the cats were either demons or um, they believed that the witch could actually like possess the cat. Yeah. I was going to say possess the cat. I don't want to say transform into a cat. I know they did that in Hocus Pocus, but um, like, that's what started the whole Salem witch trials. They oh, you're about to get you're about to get in a fight with your wife. They did not transform <laughs> into a cat in Hocus Pocus. They, they all right. What we're, what we're not going to do, cat. what we're not going to do, is have three grown men talk about Hocus Pocus. <laughs> all right, we're going to move on. Great movie, though. I watched it every Halloween. Yeah. What was your I, favorite part about Hocus Pocus? I mean, all probably all turned into cats. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, well, now that Dave is officially getting into a fight with his wife tonight, I think that uh, pretty much does it for Hex Hollow, right? Yeah, that was a fun one. It was a fun one. Crazy ride. A wild, wild ride. Gentlemen, what do we got coming up next week? This is Dave. Oh, yeah, me. It's me. Uh, this guy. First first episode in Pennsylvania? <clears throat> the first we're going we're gonna to head over to Pennsylvania. Just, just for, the, <laughs> for the audio listeners, Dave held the book up to the screen, so that helps you if you're also make sure you rate review and subscribe on itunes yeah let us let us know how dave's audio uh, is for great information when when we asked dave what's coming up next he goes yeah. this guy yeah <laughs> so fun, fun story for the the um the audio listeners who can't see i was holding the book up and then immediately got cut off by everybody and i still haven't been able to finish saying it because you guys won't shut the fuck up for two seconds <laughs> we'll see you next week yeah, have a good one. <laughs> Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, the demon of Brownsville Road, um, as well as a few other uh, creepy locations down there. So that'll be a fun one. Hell yeah. yeah a nice double dip into Pennsylvania. Mm-hmm. And uh, another demon episode. So I am in. I am yeah, in. We had witches this week, demons next week. Rob, what are we got the following week? Um, we're going to hit Savannah. It's one of our most requested areas. So we're going to take care of that. I'm also working on an Oklahoma story that will be my next episode a few weeks after that. So we are uh, loaded up. And then I think even after that, I am going to maybe start working on the Bridgewater Triangle stuff. Catherine, if you're an expert <clears throat> on that specific case, then yeah, I would absolutely... Uh... Yeah, I'm assuming Catherine that's what you mean by put me in, coach. So yeah, yeah. We're, I was talking with Catherine this weekend. She's going to jump in on the Brownsville Road case. I offered cool. to bring on the Marietta River Witch this week, but she didn't want to put on all the uh, makeup and outfit again. <laughs> if she was going to come on the episode, it was as the witch. <laughs> yeah, agree. Anyways, just um, speaking esoteric terminology. Absolutely. <laughs> uh, any uh, striking new reviews that you want to touch on there, Rob? Um, we didn't get any, um, written reviews, but we got a bunch of new five-star reviews. So we appreciate all of those. 
keep giving us the five star reviews. And like I say every week, if you actually write something, we will read it on air because we are Ron Burgundy and yeah. we just read teleprompters. We can't. So. We can't just read the five star reviews. We can like count chocolate it, and all of us count to five. No. Okay. What? We'll, uh, we'll see you guys next week. Bye. I wasn't sure if you guys all want to group together and count each star from the five star review, but you know, you guys aren't in it for a good time, so that's fine. I think you're confusing the count from Sesame Street with the count from. Yeah, I think so too. I just want to talk about uh, Hocus Pocus more. You guys want to talk about Sesame Street? Yeah, no. Count Chocula transform into a cat. This show sucks. All right, we'll talk to you guys next week. (laughs) (laughs) I want to thank everyone for tuning in. Uh, Everyone who uh, joined us on the live stream, we appreciate it. And uh, we'll be back next week for a brand new episode of Hometown Ghost Stories. Peace. Thank you, guys. We'll see you.